Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, we are recording. We are recording, I think. So this is the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Now, my regular sparring partner, Michael McMullen, uh, he's not here this week. His wife's given birth, which is a very good reason not to be on the podcast. But I've not been left holding the baby because I'm joined by a man who's actually played at the Crucible. Of course, we're still talking about the World Championship. It should be on at the moment. Neil Folds. Uh, Neil, how's lockdown been for you? Yeah, very good. Um, I'm missing it, obviously. Um, it's a hard to, to be at this time of the year and not be thinking about the crucible because it's been a way of our life, isn't it? My, mine for so many years that, that we're kind of here. We are in, you know, in April and approaching early May, and and there is no world championship. So, um, you know, there is a bit of a void, I think, for for us and for a number of snooker enthusiasts as well. Have you been watching all the? I mean, there's a lot of nostalgia, you know, programs on various channels. I, I mean, I've, I just found myself tuning in just because I kind of, even though I've seen it all before, it's it's there and it's kind of what else is there, what else is there to do? Well, some things that you'll have seen more than others. Interestingly, I, I, I listened to your last podcast with Michael when he said he wanted to see the the '85 final again, and at first, for, at first I thought he was being sarcastic, <laughs> but I, don't, I know what he means. You've only ever seen the the last frame. I mean, whatever else happened in that match, I can't recall, but um, I have enjoyed it. I've enjoyed watching Stephen Hendry in his matches when he was coming through. You saw what an incredible talent he was. And we have seen players like that. And we are, well, yeah, so how talented is this guy? He'll be world champion one day, future world champion, because they don't always go through with it. But in his case, he did many times. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed as well, um, and it's, well, it's a reminder, it's something I knew anyway, just what a great player Jimmy White was. Um, obviously, World Championship we talk about in the context of he never won it, but there's been a lot of snooker shown finals and other matches and the stuff on YouTube as well. Um, just show what a great player Jimmy was. And it shouldn't be forgotten. OK, he didn't win it, and that's a great shame. But what a player and what, a, what an entertainer. Yeah, I mean, I, I said something the other day, which a couple of people didn't understand. Other people said, I know exactly what you mean. That When Jimmy White, especially at his prime, when he hit the ball, they made it kind of a different sound to me. The, the balls kind of just fizzed around the table um, to anyone else. The speed he got through the, the, the cue through the ball, I mean, it's absolute natural. And, um, you know, the interesting thing about Jimmy, as we know, is 
you know, he is he's the consummate professional these days. You know, he's never late for anything. He's always practicing. Um, he's kind of gone the other way around with it all, hasn't he? Whereas <laughs> when he was young, he didn't do any of those things. He was all over the shop. And, uh, you know, he was a, a wonderful talent. Yeah. And we must never forget what a great player he was. He, he still can play the game. But, um, you know, his career is pretty much coming to an end now, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, of course, he did win the the seniors, though, at the, the, the Crucible last year. OK, well, our main topic uh, this week, I'm going to be talking to Neil later about what it's like to actually play at the Crucible in the various rounds and the various setups there. But before that, uh, just some follow up on last week. Now, I was talking last week about uh, we had an email from a listener about the WST rebranding. And I was talking about some of the other people in the sport who do great things. And I meant to mention Dave Caulfield, who writes a, a website called Snooker HQ. And I, I forgot to mention him and what he's doing actually at the moment, he's going through season by season, um, reflecting on each snooker season. It's very interesting just to see the way tournaments built up, the way the different narratives changed. He's done a lot already on the eighties. And of course it's Steve Davis, Steve Davis, Steve Davis. I think just reading them, you realize, realize how dominant he was, but it's worth checking his website out because he, he puts a lot of work into it. And I always like anything well-written, which it certainly is. Um, we've also had a lot of emails um, about the main topic last week, which was, which was our alternative Crucible Classic. So the BBC have got this Crucible Classic series on every day at the moment. And Michael and myself chose a few that weren't in it. And we've had a few emails from people with their own choices. Neil Harrison writes, he says, how on earth did the BBC not show Steve Davis's amazing win against John Higgins in 2010? Quarter final for the legend at 53, surely deserved to be aired. And he also said, uh, one of the all time greats, three times world champion, Mark Williams doesn't get a mention anywhere, even though his 2018 victory over John Higgins was pure quality. He also says Sean Murphy against Matthew Stevens, 2007 contender that's actually part of the series so they will be showing that I agree with David Higgins that was a great match and a great story um, I guess the thing always with these things is you've got a finite number of programs and they had to whittle down a, a list um, the Williams Higgins match again that was a great final the, the one very simple reason that's not in the series the series is actually a repeat from 2016 so obviously that final hadn't happened then if they did another one if they updated it I'm sure it'd be in but uh, that's what Neil says uh, we've also had one from Jay Brannan. He's come up with uh, his own matches. Uh, he said, I'd like to see the second round 96, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Tony Drago. Now, Ronnie won 13-4, but he said, I'd like to see how quickly this excep exceptionally rapid contest was played. Very quickly, I think, is the answer to that. Another one here. I'll get your thoughts on this one, Neil, because this was a big story at the time. Stefan Masrosis beating Peter Ebden in the first round 97. Now, it's fair to say Mas uh, that was his debut at the Crucible. Fair to say he enjoyed himself. I think he had a, a couple of pints along the way, and he won 10-3. It was a strange game, wasn't it? Because no one really saw that one coming. I mean, people that used to bet on snooker and, and do an accumulator, and a lot of people did in those days, I should think Ebden was in everybody's bet. He was a complete coupon buster, that game. And, and, and Masrosis took a pint out there. I think he's one of the last I can remember doing that. And I didn't even know that he was a drinker at the time. That was the strangest thing. It was like, <laughs> come out of the blue, that he had these a few drinks coming out. He had a Quite a partisan crowd. I certainly brought some down from some people down from Leicester. He's a very highly rated player who had never really done it, you know, considering the ability he clearly had. But um, he, he won the match very easily, and Ebden just didn't play. It was it was a weird game actually, and Ebden wouldn't be the first person to have have not really turned up. You know, I've seen as great as he is, Neil Robertson do it a couple of times, where they just don't play in that first match. They're almost thinking, get me through this to the next round, and. Um, it was a, it was an interesting one. Of course, he he didn't quite go on, did he? Because um, Alan Robidoux beat him. But that match itself was 
maybe just a glimpse of something that Mazzarosa should have done more in, during his career. Yeah, and there's something about, uh, you know, and I'm not glamorising drinking, but there's something about the Crucible crowd that uh, a lot of them enjoy drink themselves at the end of the day. And, of course, I think whenever Robert Milkins comes in with that uh, I Am A Cider Drinker song, they love that, don't they? And I think maybe, just seeing Mazzarosa's with a pint, maybe he, he, they got on his side. I don't know. They may have done. They may have done. That was very interesting. And, and another point I wanted to make before I forget, you're talking about great matches. And I heard you say this with Michael the other day, the Alex Higgins-Terry Griffiths match in 1979. That was mm. the first match I ever saw there because we, we'd come up from London to watch um, John Virgo because he was based in London then. And he was playing um, at that time. Now, let me just think. He was playing... Uh, I think it was Bill Werben, which was on at the same time. And I had one of those seats down the middle at the Crucible where you could watch both matches. And we were there to watch uh, John Virgo play. And he won that match against Bill Werbenick. But I saw the first session of Alex Higgins and Terry Griffiths. That was an incredible game of snooker. It's still one of the best matches I think you'll have seen. Big breaks, lots of big clearances. And it got to the point where in that first session, Alex Higgins should have won it 8-0 that session. He was he won it 6-2. The two frames, the Griff won, he'd, he'd cleared up to win uh, on the black, I think. Or, and he was swamped and eventually won to win the match. And it was a fantastic game of snooker. Unfortunately, I think you made the point, not a lot of it would have been on the television, so it's not really ever going to be seen again. No, uh, apart from, I guess, Roger Lee. Roger Lee might have footage. Uh, historian, he's got a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth saying that Roger, you know, he makes it available to people. So, um, you know, the, someone sent me a list of all the matches he had. I mean, he must have a big house, that's what I'm saying. Uh, just finally on Jay Brown's email, he said the, the other match he'd love to see, Stephen Hendry, Barry Pinches, 2004, Hendry won 13-12. He said, I was such a big Hendry fan at the time, I bunked off my A-level general studies lesson to watch it live. I even told my lecturer that was the reason I'd be absent. I'm not sure what sort of school that is, to be honest. But anyway, um, he got the result he wanted. The other last email I just want to read out is from Andrew Wallace. And uh, he's saying that uh, the BBC, they showed the other day the 2002 semi between Andrew and O'Sullivan. But he said, what about 1999, which was a great match between them. He said, didn't Clive Everton describe it as snooker from the gods? He did. There was a th the third session there. I think it was five centuries. Ronnie nearly had a maximum, missed the pink. It was fantastic. Um, of course, that was the year Hendry went on to win his seventh title. It comes down to the same thing, though. There have been so many matches they could have picked. I mean, I was watching one on YouTube the other night, um, Ebden against Jimmy White uh, from 96. It went 13-12. I think Ebden made a century and the decider. You know, a match that I'd kind of forgotten about, but that was that stands with any of these matches in terms of quality and excitement. Ebden gave it the come on at one point. Um, there have been so many, that's the point, and I guess they had to make a decision, and, and they, they, those are the matches they chose but it's good to hear from our listeners you know other matches that they remember watching and uh, keep the choices coming in of course uh, the world championship should be on at the moment it's not but uh, last week it was officially announced by wst that it's going to start hopefully on july the 31st obviously there's certain skepticism about whether it will but actually i think what they've done is it's quite a feat. They've got the BBC Eurosport, the Crucible and Sheffield City Council all to agree to these dates. That's no mean feat because it's not easy to organise the World Championship. There's hundreds of people working behind the scenes in the TV production, in the staff, Crucible's own staff, WST staff. We don't expect, I guess, an audience to be allowed in, certainly not the full quota. But if it's on at all, it'll be a great fillip, not least for the players, Neil. Of course, they, as you would know, they've been kicking their heels. They're used to having a break at the end of the season, but they're not used to not having a World Championship. No, and I hope it's on. Um, I think everyone does. I had one or two people say that they thought it shouldn't be on. It should be scrapped. I don't see the point in that. Look, it, we know it's going to be, a, if it does take place, it will be a different <coughs> championship to the ones 
that we've been used to. But I would love to think it could go ahead. I guess the qualifiers are the headache. I don't know how they're going to get played. Um, that would be my biggest worry. But um, nothing I'd like to see more than let's get a world championship done and just get snooker back played. Because generally, looking at it from a different angle, if we can get the world championship played, it means that we're doing better, you know, as, as a mm. nation. And, um, you know, that's part of it. And we, we, we obviously there will be circumstances perhaps where it's not possible in which case we're not doing better. So I just hope to see it all back. And snooker has got to be one of those sports where it's perhaps more likely than others to to get something back on the road. Yeah, I think you're right. The qualifying could be difficult. One option I think there possibly would be to play in different venues. They've done that before. So you have fewer people at each venue. Easy for me to say, I'm not, I'm not having to organise it. The point I make, I've made this before on the podcast. If you don't plan, you can't, it can't happen. So yeah. the plans are, the plans are there. It's not going to be WST's fault if it can't happen in July. Some people have said, well, why not, why not schedule it later in the year? It might happen then either. They're, they're taking a punt on it. If it doesn't happen, it won't be their fault. I agree with you. I really hope it does happen. Of course, the Tour Championship as well is, is due to be in July also. Uh, just one final thing as well on the, on the Crucible Classics. I think one of the interesting things for me, uh, now that I work in TV snooker, the way the TV coverage has changed over the years, there's no doubt the actual the coverage in terms of the amount of cameras has improved. Um, I'm not a great fan of constantly cutting to the wife in the corner and all that stuff, but actually they do a great job uh, of creating the drama and there's more. you see more of the Crucible now than you used to. One thing that has changed as well is, is the commentary style. I know for a fact in the 80s, because Clive Everton told me, he said, we were told not to speak. They said, you cannot speak, you know, on, on sort of three shots running, or there was some ridiculous rule like that. So you'd see some things that just went unremarked upon, which now commentators will be all over. Now, of course, a lot of people, I'm sure, argue that in all sports, there's maybe too much talk. I think you see the transition, though. They started to show in the 90s, the sort of the, the, the words were creeping out a bit more and there was more talking. Um, and it's interesting to hear, you know, some of those old voices. I, th- I think w- what I found is one way to be really appreciated as a commentator is to be either dead or retired because, because they, because <laughs> they love you then, uh, you know, they don't, the, 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 the Ted Lowe's and the Jack Carnams and these guys, they don't have the sort of modern criticism because they're, they're not here to defend themselves, I guess, but it's been great actually to hear some of those voices, I think. I've enjoyed it. Um, I do think that, look, whenever I'm doing commentary, lucky enough to do it, and you and I do a lot, Dave, whenever anyone sends you a message in criticism, they always say, will you shut up? You talk too much. No one ever says, are you not saying enough? Would you say more? No one ever says that. So I'm always wary of that. And sometimes we do get a little bit involved. I do get a little bit verbose, a little bit excitable when things are going on. But I must say that there shouldn't be a rule whereby three shots in a row you can't speak. I mean, there's got to be a happy medium. And um, I thought I did often wonder when the, when there's two commentators and they don't say anything for five minutes, what are they actually doing in there? <laughs> what are they doing? What could they possibly be doing? Especially when we, as we know, let's be honest about it. Not all of these guys were great pals. We won't mm. go into any names. There's quite a few combinations we didn't get on. So they're in there. They're not commentating. They're not speaking to each other. What are they doing? They're not on their phone because no one had a mobile. What <laughs> on earth is going on? Well, I, well, I could answer that on one occasion when when nothing was said. Uh, the Masters one time for 10 minutes. It's because poor old Ted Lowe had collapsed. And, uh, and Rex, Rex Williams had to prop him up and, and call call for sort of help. So that's why nothing was said. And again, but again, the BBC apparently got no calls for anyone. Why aren't your commentators speaking? Which is, is quite a sobering thought, really. Anyway, um, it's all there on the uh, Crucible Classics. I think it's on the iPlayer. It's, I'm sure it's on YouTube. It, is it interesting to hear those old voices? I'm delighted actually to hear Ray Edmonds the other day, who I, who I really enjoyed listening to. Yes. And as I say, they're kind of untouchable now, those guys. 
realise because they've done they've done their shift and they've left it to to the new brigade. Anyway, um, let's get on to the main topic of the of the podcast, which is playing at the Crucible. And obviously, Neil, you've um, got a, a, an insight into that. It's important to say there's there's different, I guess, um, atmospheres in the Crucible going out for the first time. We've spoken before about your match with Alex Higgins, but. I, also, the, the, just the, the playing arena. You know, you played in all the great venues, the Conference Centre, Wembley, the Guildhall, the Hexagon, Reading, all these places. Would it be fair to say the Crucible was the, the, the sort of tightest of them all in terms of playing? Oh, by, by a mile. I mean, I was lucky enough, as I mentioned earlier, to go there in 1979. So I had a, a, a kind of an insight into what the place was like. The thing about the Crucible is a lot of players, I'm sure, and I've been there for the first time to play their match and think, well, I've heard so much about this venue. When they get there, they think, is this it? It's a little bit, <laughs> it's not quite what you expect. Now, I love the place. I'm not going to criticise it. I'm saying that it's so small in there, uh, it feels like it should be a one-table arena with two in there. Um, and you've got all the, you know, the, everyone's on top of you. You've got the, the balconies, which you very rarely get to see, except for in the final when the, 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 the director will always cut to the people in the balconies, the friends and family. But all these balconies up the side, which you can look down on the table on, it's, it's a very unusual atmosphere. <laughs> And, and sometimes it can leave you cold when you get there. If you're not careful, you can get there and not really take to it. And I know a number of players who, who I, they all take to it in the end. Some take to it quickly, but for other players, they don't rate it for years. But in the end, they've got such lasting memories there. That's almost what, what you feel about. You think about all those great moments, some terrible moments there. And it is a different atmosphere to anywhere else. But goodness me, it is a strange venue to be at. And it's well worth anyone going there if they get the chance. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think has always looked awkward is the players are sat so close together. Um, and I, we know that some players like to have a chat, some players don't. Did, did, were, you, were you a talker? And, and who were the talkers? And, and, and if they were talking, what, what were they saying? Well, interestingly, uh, there were a few like that. Um, I, I, I played Anthony Davis there once, um, not a match that will never... F- figure in any classic match I don't think and he, he was nudging me a few frames into the match and said Neil I need you to help me what could be wrong and it turned out there was a spider by and he was terrified of spiders so he, he wanted me to get the spider away from the the, the area you don't, um, mean, you don't mean the rest you mean the no, actual not, creature no, an, yeah. an actual spider yeah <laughs> it would be terrifying if one of those things come to life no no that's right no um, so he uh, I didn't I was not a talker I didn't really ever want to get involved I'm from that old school um, it's one of the few things you can compare me to Stephen Hendry with. I didn't want to talk, you know, to anybody out there. I didn't think it was the right way to be to do it. Um, I, funny enough, that match with Alex Higgins, he made a few remarks, all friendly. You know, nothing, nothing against me. Just sort of like a little few observations, which I found quite amusing. But and and Eddie Charlton, I played him there, and and he was talking all right. He was giving me some <laughs> some verbals, you know. He was like he was like I was uh, like playing England Australia at cricket, you know. A little bit of quiet sledging, you know. You lucky so and so was one of the things he said, um, just under his breath, so that mm-hmm. I could hear. And he had a big grin on his face, but what he was saying it was was not the other side of it, you know. It was great. I mean, I loved it all. It was nothing was untoward, nothing was unfair, but. Um, there were a few like that, you know, no one particularly. I never had long conversations with anybody out there because I, I was, not, was not interested in doing that. Well, I'm, I'm guessing this would have happened probably in your match with Eddie. I'm, 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 I'm going to speculate that the, the, the wall probably came up at some point because that because when play finishes on the other side, uh, the wall comes up. Does, we always say, oh, it's, you know, it's a different feel. Is it actually a different feel? 
Well, it is. And the first time I ever played there against Alex Higgins, I remembered one thing about that match. Now, it, it, it was an evening session followed by a morning session, which I don't know if that happens still. It's quite an unusual setup. Mm. So the match is over quite quickly. Um, but two frames in, the wall went up straight away. And I can't, yeah. I, and so I basically I was down to the one table set up almost straight away. And I've looked at, and the other match on actually was Kirk Stevens and Eddie Sinclair and Kirk had beaten 10-1. So that session was over. So we, we basically had the crucible to ourselves on that evening. So that was a very strange atmosphere for me when we played the second session, which was really tight. And for the most part, that was two, uh, two tables on. And I think by the time we'd finished, because it went all the way, it was down to the one. But it's very different. I mean, it's a, very, it's, it's, it's a, better, it's a better atmosphere when there's the one table, when the, other, when the curtain um, goes up and the other match ends and people hang around. It, you can concentrate more um, because it is a bit hectic in there. I mean, for instance, we've never thought about taking the wall down at the Crucible, haven't we, like, <laughs> like other venues, because it would be... It's all on top of you, and I think you would never be able to concentrate, unlike other venues where you can. So it's a very different atmosphere when you do get the crucible to yourselves. Yeah, and and that's the thing, isn't it? When the wall's down, you get all the noise from the other table. Um, it seems referees get louder and louder, telling the audience to be quiet. You know, in the interval, quiet, please. It's, it seems like it's so off-putting. I guess you just learn in the end to try and do your best to block all that stuff out. Yeah, I mean, I used to think Len Ganley was a very strong referee, someone I always really liked. But there was this, you know, a few times when he would be trying to help you by, he would be on the other table and he would boom out, quiet, please. But it would usually be on the backswing of your shot, which didn't really do the job, you know. It would just put you off even more. But, yeah, look, um, uh, there was that little area down the middle of the middle where you you could be put off. But sometimes, you know, if you want to be put off, but you can be, and that's the key. And for the most part, you just have to get on with it. And, uh, and, uh, you know, even the camera positions are so close, they could put you off if they wanted to. But in generally, in general, you don't find that players are put off by the cameramen. When you think about it, as brilliant as they are at their job, they're moving around more than anybody else could. They're always in your line of, of, of vision to an extent, but they're so good at their job and you just know that they're not really, you can't do anything about that. So a lot of it's in the mind, isn't it? Yeah, I think, again, though, maybe debutants find it more difficult because I remember John Lardner, player from Scotland, he played at the Crucible and he said that he said that he felt the cameramen were like Daleks, which is <laughs> which is maybe not what you want in your, you know, in your, in your mind as you're playing snooker. So you, of course, played in the semi-finals there where it does go down to one table um, and it always just feels like literally a different arena because you've got more room. You're not sitting next to your opponent, of course. Um, how, how different does that feel? Yeah, no, that was different. Now, now it felt like uh, when you get down to the one table and you go in there, you think, well, I still can't believe there was ever two tables here because it, it feels like a nice venue for, for one table, like I say. Um, and it's a bit of a longer walk uh, to your, your chair, you know, you're away from your opponent. I think the biggest problem I had with the, you know, the semi-finals is the length of the matches. You know, you've got mm. all these sessions to play, um, but it is different. You feel like it's a great occasion. I mean, I only ever played, you know, in the one table set up once. Joe beat me, as as most people will remember. Um, I think the third session, he he was the one in that match. He really moved away from me when he won it. 7-1 or something, but um, it, it is a different atmosphere, but you know, it, it's it's where you want to be, there's no, you never forget that it's where you want to be doing, you want to be playing in the biggest venue of them all and um, I don't know, I think maybe when you do get beaten in the semi-finals you, you're more disappointed than ever because the atmosphere is so good, you want more of it 
and also you're missing out on a world final. So that, that match is quite um, a difficult one, as we saw you know, with David Gilbert, how disappointed mm. he was last year. He lost an epic match to John Higgins and um, you know, he missed out on a world final. So there's something about that round and the whole occasion that, that gets to you, really. And the fact that the whole arena are there to watch you play or your opponent play, it, it's very special. Yeah, I mean, I think the semi-finals are a good example of how the World Championship, it's matches within matches, isn't it? You know, you've got effectively four matches there, four sessions. You can probably afford to maybe lose one of them, but you probably have to win the other three. And that's the thing about this tournament, which is completely different to any other matches held over, sometimes three days. So much of the importance of it, I guess, is how you keep your mind clear between matches, when you're not between sessions, when you're not actually playing. It can be overnight. How difficult is it to not dwell on the scoreline? You might be 10-6 down or maybe 8 each, whatever. How hard is it to actually switch off from it? Because you're in the middle of a match, but you're actually not playing at that point. No, that's right. And you make a good point about sometimes the scoreline overnight because you would never have had that situation before. Um, I mean, I know that the UK Championship used to be two-session matches and I'd already played in them. In a, in, a, in a UK final when I, I'd played at the Crucible um, and the, the year I got to the semi-finals, I'd been in the UK final, which was the best of 31. But the first time I played at the Crucible, I'd never played a match that went into a second day. Mm-hmm. You know, when I played Alex Higgins, I think I was 5-4 up overnight. But, you know, I think, well, I've got to sleep on this now and start again tomorrow. And I think that's the whole point, isn't it? You know, it, people talk about a sport being on the day. Well, it's not on the day. It's sometimes over two days. or And also, you've, it can be difficult to sleep. I remember the first time I played in that sort of setup. It's impossible to sleep knowing you're on the evening and then you're playing again the next morning. Mm. I mean, it's a very quick turnaround. So sleep is not really going to happen. And you think, I'm going to be exhausted when I get out of there in the morning. And, uh, of course, you're not because you, the adrenaline takes you through it all. But it is a, a very unusual. But all the time you're doing it, you know that this is the purest form of the game. And this is what it's all about. Absolutely. I was going to ask you, actually, in terms of, like, I think a lot of people would be interested in, what is the routine for a player? Say you're on first thing in the morning, so you're playing at 10 o'clock. What time would you aim to get up? And what is the routine beforehand? I guess players have a, have a sort of, quick practice knock but what time would you get to the crucible how does it all sort of pan out i think if you're on at 10 o'clock you, you really want to be there by about quarter past nine and hitting some balls um if you can have a bit of breakfast it wouldn't be very much i know that our, our good friend alan mcmanus reckons he, he'll never eat um, on the day of a match even if it's an evening session you <laughs> won't have eaten all day nothing you just can't do that you know and um but i think yeah i think you've just got to get there hitting some balls around not be not be rushed not be stressed it's like I mean, you can have nightmares, uh, literal nightmares, where you think you, you're dreaming that you're late for your match at the Crucible and you're stuck in traffic, you know. So mm. you've got to make sure that doesn't happen in reality. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just think you've got to give yourself every chance. I think at the beginning I was a little bit more too laid back where I would uh, just get there 20 minutes before the game and then maybe get changed and just be on the table. But I think the older you get, the more... You think, well, I've just got to give myself every chance here. I've just got to get myself at the venue, get myself sitting down calm, hitting some balls, and a little bit of time to reflect, not a load of time. You don't want to be sitting in your dressing room an hour before the game. That's the worst thing you can do, fretting, playing shots in your mind that haven't even happened yet. So there is a difficult balance between the two, I think. And one of them is you've got to be relaxed and um, and, and not really fret about what's to come. It's got to be said as well, it's not the most luxurious backstage. You know, theatre dressing rooms are known for being not, you know, sort of, uh, as I say, luxurious. And it's not like you're sort of relaxing in a sedan chair and people are feeding you grapes. You know, those dressing rooms, they've been they've been renovated over the years, but they're, they're not the sort of place you want to spend a lot of time, I don't think. 
No, that's right. I mean, I remember looking at the, like, the picture of um, the, 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 the sort of gents' toilets outside of the arena. Someone had drew a face on, on, the, on the man to prove it was a gents' toilets. And that was <laughs> there about 15 years later, that same little drawing. <laughs> but nothing had changed in the venue all those years, you know. The, the front of the venue is great. And like you say, it's not very salubrious behind there. They've got not much room. It has been renovated now, but for years it wasn't a lot behind the scenes. Not that that matters really, because um, mm. it's not really what you're thinking about. And if it is what you're thinking about, then um, you know it, it, you're thinking about the wrong thing, basically. Yeah. Well, we were talking there about the one table setup, and about an email from uh, John Hogarth. He, now he's a Crucible regular since 1983. Obviously, uh, hoping to be there. I'm sure later this year. I'll just uh, see if I can find his email. That would help. Yeah. So he says. Um, well, actually, he mentions uh, he had. A, we talked last week about the David Gray Ronnie O'Sullivan match. He said he, he had a season ticket that year, didn't miss a ball of it. But he he asked an interesting question. He said, uh, "Who do you think is the best player never to have made the one table setup? That means never to have been in the semi-finals." Um, interesting question because so many, of course, players have uh, got there. Now, if you look at the current top sixteen, there's actually only two players who uh, currently have not got there. Uh, Yan Bing Tao, who's Still only 20. I think he's only played there once or, or maybe twice. And Jack Lazowski is the other one. All the others have done. I was looking back at, at the Crucible Almanac. Chris Down is an incredible tome. Um, and Willie Thorne is a name that certainly leaps out. He was in a couple of quarterfinals. But, you know, he was so ubiquitous on TV in the 80s. You just assumed that he would have got to a semi-final, But it just didn't happen. No, I think he, he would be the first name I would think of as someone, you know, who... Um who never played in the one table set. I've never reached a semi-final that you thought would have done. Um, and like you say, I don't know quite how that happened because he was such a good player for such a long period of time. I don't know. Maybe it just didn't happen for him. Now, I had a match with him there one year where he led all the way through in the match and I ended up beating him. But at 13-11, and I was always behind, and that was second round or something. That could have been the year when he maybe should have gone a lot further. But um, for some reason, it didn't suit him. Whether whether it's that or whether the long matches don't suit certain players and they get knocked out, it could be that. I really wouldn't like to say. If you look at someone that always was suited for long matches, Matthew Stevens had a tremendous crucible record, didn't he? And it, for some reason, that place really suited him, the matches and durations. And maybe the players that you think should have got there just didn't really enjoy the long format. Yeah, and there was a couple of other players as well. Um, Anthony Hamilton reached four quarterfinals at the Crucible so far, and Ryan Day three. Two other players who you think certainly good enough, top 16 players in their day. Again, though, you know, the World Championship, you're going to be playing top players. That's the thing. And, you know, if you run into a Hendry, I mean, Nigel Bond seemed to play Hendry every year. Obviously, Bond did get to a final there. But, you know, you can't help the draw, can you? And, and over the longer matches, that I guess the, the best players are going to win. Simple as that. Yeah, but you've also got players that will come into their own. I mean, uh, I mean, again, I know it's a bit of a cliche. We talk about Barry Hawkins, but his record there is so good and it's, it's a lot better at, at the Crucible than it is anywhere else. I mean, he's a terrific player, but f for some reason, it's either the venue or uh, the, the, the fact that he enjoyed matches over a long duration. He just glides through matches, doesn't he, uh, Barry Hawkins? And, and maybe that suited him. So it is the actual World Championships that brings out the best in players, I think. Here's a question then. It might be controversial, bearing in mind that you know the World Championship is supposed to be on at the moment. Is is does does it throw too long a shadow of the World Championship over the rest of the game? I mentioned Jimmy earlier, and you know his career to an extent is defined by the fact that he's never won it. But he, he won 30 other tournaments of, var of various types. Um, do we put too much store in the World Championship when we look at a player's career? You look at someone like Ding Junhui. No one would argue what a great player he is. Neil Robertson, who's a one-time champion. You know they're fantastic players. 
but at the Crucible haven't been as successful as some other players. Does that matter? Well, it's an interesting point. Uh, listen, if it if it if it throws a long shadow over the rest of the game, it's because it is the World Championship. It's very important. I know what you mean. I mean, there's some of the events now outside of not only the World Championship but the UK and the Masters. I know that you've got a bit of a, a, an issue with this as well. There's some very big tournaments. I know we lost the big event in China, but that's a huge prize money event. You know, the champion of the champions is quite high prestige, but it's kind of more recent. And, um, you know, the, the Coral Series, the Tour Championships, which we haven't had yet, of course, they are big events. That That's long matches in that. The finals over three sessions. So for big prize money. But I guess it's the status, the longevity and the history of, of the World Championships that, that holds it in such great stead, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the, the Triple Crown you alluded to there. The thing about that is the, the, those tournaments have for a long time been known as the Triple Crown, but they were never intended, the, the world, the UK, the Masters, they were never intended to represent, for example, like Grand Slams in tennis or majors in golf. That's a very modern thing, literally a few years old, the idea that they are sort of the showpiece events. And I think, like you say, there's so many other tournaments that players want to win as well um, that shouldn't be forgotten. And, and winning any tournament, especially in this era with the you know the high standards, is worth uh, worth celebrating. I mean, Neil Robertson last year, you know, he was in four finals in a row. He won two titles and he said... Obviously, he wanted to win the World Championship, but he didn't consider it a disappointing season just because he lost in the quarterfinals at Sheffield. You know, he, he had a great season. He won a lot of money, a lot of ranking points and a lot of trophies. I think there's an argument now that some tournaments are now at the equal of the UK Championship. And I love that event. I think it's another event with a great history. Um, but the, there are tournaments that you could say that are at least the equal of it. And the UK Championship being having been changed, the you know, the early rounds are fairly short. Uh, the, all the players at the Barbican is great, but some matches are played out in the back rooms. It's not so brilliant out there, you know, and the finals over one day. So I don't see any reason why that tournament and, and the prize money is not necessarily much higher now either than some others. So, you know, there's no obvious reason why that tournament of the three is any better than the others. I have to say, though, going back to what we're talking about, the World Championship, it does stand alone and it should. Yeah, of course. And, and we all miss it and we all hope uh, that it will be on in July. Now, uh, before we end, I've got a new feature <laughs> because uh, I guess in lockdown, I thought a lot of people have got time on their hands. And one thing that people may want to do is read a book. And there's been a lot of snooker books over the years, some better than others, it's got to be said. But I thought each week I would recommend one. And the first one I'm going to recommend it's uh, was published in 2007 by Headline, and it's Alex Higgins from The Eye of the Hurricane, My Story. It's Alex Higgins' autobiography. Now, First, first things first, whoever wrote this with him, uh, congratulations, because I'm guessing it wasn't <laughs> wasn't a straightforward thing. But the point I would make here is a lot has been written about Alex Higgins by a lot of people. I think it's only right he had his own say. And it's a very interesting book. You can sort of hear his voice in it. Obviously, all autobiographies ultimately are self-serving. It's your own point of view. But like I say, why shouldn't he give it? A lot of people um, have given their opinions on him. And he's very funny in places. It's it, fair to say he didn't get on great with Ted Lowe because um, – Ted kind of ran pot black with a rod of iron and was a very proper person, you know, from the old school, knew Joe Davis, all of that. Alex Higgins was not from the old school. He was very much from the new school. And there was an incident. He got thrown out, actually, because he basically, uh, this is not a nice story, but he basically was caught urinating in the sink in his in his changing room. And what I love about this story, he tells it sort of deadpan. And he, he points out, he said, well, he said, I had the taps running, as if that makes any difference. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he, he, and Ted, of course, found out about this and was not happy. And I'll just read this. This paragraph maybe sums up Alex's approach to authority, because it's fair to say he wasn't a great fan of it. 
This is what he said about Ted Lowe, who quite rightly is a quite a revered figure in the sport. He said, Ted, no, Ted Lowe is a nice enough fella who enjoyed a drink, that's for sure. But he didn't like me and told me so many times. I wasn't exactly a fan of his either, so the feeling was mutual. When it came to the brave new world of snooker that was happening all around him, in my view, he had his head in the sand most of the time and up his own arse the rest of it. <laughs> it, it, it. It seemed to me that he and others involved just wanted to drag snooker back into the dark ages where players such as Reed and Spencer, me and all the others were keeping it interesting, bringing in new blood fans and players. So that was kind of one of his many clashes with authority, but it's a good read. It's Alex Higgins my story from the Isle of the Hurricane and, um, you know, another another great character that uh, sadly passed away, as indeed as Ted, so he can't defend himself from those uh, quite serious charges there. Um, Neil, uh, take care during this lockdown and uh, I guess it's just sort of counting down the days. We're, we're both hoping that Clandidno will be uh, the, the great return. Well, the way I see it, Dave, I mean, look, there's lots to this and I wouldn't like to go into what ITV feel about it. I, I know that they're very keen to get it on, as everyone is. But surely of anything that you could ever get on an eight man event, there has to be a, as good a chance as any of that going ahead. And if that doesn't go ahead, there must be some doubts as to what else they can play that so soon after it. Because it, we've got eight players um, and most of the time it's just going to be one table. Um, I know that there's more important things happening at the venue at the moment um, than, than snooker because it's been used uh, in in relation to the you know the the, the, mm. the issue with coronavirus, isn't it? It's been it's basically hospital at the moment, so we'll, we'll worry about that later. But you know, I'd love to think we could get snooker on, but right now that isn't important. But it it, it would be good to think that there'll be some progress made by all and and we were back in business, Dave. It would be great fun, wouldn't it? I, I miss it all like we all do. As you pointed out, we all we all wanted a break from it, but not under these circumstances. <laughs> Absolutely, no. And I think uh, just the final point is that uh, we will be guided by other sports. It's, it strikes me a football can come back. Bear in mind that the players there are in close physical contact with each other. Snooker is not a physical game. Uh, it's quite a small playing arena, but it seems to me that snooker actually would be a sport that if the guidelines did shift, it could happen. We don't know. We hope so. Uh, Neil, take care. Hope to see you very soon. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.